Welcome to the Mike and Much Podcast. I'm your host, and I am here in a very small, uh, confined booth with my friend and trusty producer, Max Kerman. Max, describe where we're standing right now. It'd be the kind of place that if there wasn't a computer in here with this little fluorescent light shining to our eyes, if we didn't have those things, it would be like solitary confinement or something. <laughs> like, literally, this is like a torture chamber. But it's also a sound booth. Hey, but we're at 299. This is like a professional sound booth. Yeah, that's, but it's, we've never sounded better. It's meant for one person. This yeah. is actually technically a voiceover booth. So one person should be in here uh, doing this. And here you and I are. And then we're going to get Shannon to make it a three-man. In the dessert. But before we get to the dessert, Max, how you been? You're leaving for Europe soon. Yeah. Uh, we are going to London... And then Germany, it's only like for eight days. Sadly, I'm missing Shane's wedding, uh, but uh, we'll be back in town for our, our famous Kitabala show that, we, that our Kells do every summer, which is always it's fun. exciting. Uh, what else has been going on? Oh, so I went to go see the Tragically Hip, uh, the final show in, in Toronto. Wow. So tell me about I saw on uh, you know, your Snapchats and your socials that you went and saw it. Describe it. How was it? What was the vibe like? How was Gord? How so was the band? I was hoping to get to the show, but it's hard to plan anything in advance with the band schedule. You just assume that something will come up and you won't be able to do the social thing you want to. But it turned out I had this Sunday night available. Our longtime agent, Jack Ross, texted me saying, I have a couple tickets. Do you want to go? And he offered them to Lauren and I. And uh, it was it was a really special night, and I'm sure anybody who's been to this tour would say that this is something they're going to remember forever. Um, the you know they did three nights in Toronto. I went to the Sunday night show, which was the last show in Toronto, and they've played the Air Canada Center countless times over the years. Uh, so it's pretty uh, heavy thing to just think about the band never being never playing that venue ever again. Yeah. Uh, Unless there's a miracle, and you always hold out for miracles, that, that things take a turn with Gord's health um, in the right direction. Um, but the, I've been kind of following the tour on social media and, and seeing some of the like outfits Gord has been wearing. And Gord has always been a very flamboyant guy, especially <laughs> compared to the rest of the band. But he's really going out with a, like on fire on this tour. Yeah. He has these sparkly suits that he wears. Like one's silver, like silver sparkling. It looks, looks like a ballroom. What are those things called? Uh, oh, like a... Uh, Mirror ball, like a mirror ball right. kind of thing, and he has like a an emerald green version of that as well. Um, but people were so fired up, and you know, normally when you go to a show, you know, people are straggling in like you know five ten minutes after the band starts. But like there was an announcement, like the band is going on in five minutes, and the arena was packed. Like obviously it was sold out way in advance, sold out the first day went on sale, but everybody was in their seat, which was exciting, and then. Like, even, like, five, ten minutes before, people were just, like, screaming and getting on their feet. As soon as they thought something was going to happen on the stage, like a tech went on stage, people started to lose their mind. Um, and the show is broken up into kind of a smaller, intimate... There's still the five of them rocking out, but they, they're kind of jamming together. Like, you know, the stage is a big arena-sized stage, but they only use about maybe 25 square feet... Of the middle? Of the, of the middle of the stage. Yeah. And it's like... I don't know if they were, this was their intention, but it reminded me of, like, this is probably the size of their jam space when they first started playing together. That's how I read into it. Yeah. And they're kind of facing each other. Like, Gord is still facing the crowd, but they're, it's all sort of inward in the way that any young band would be jamming with each other. So I thought that was really, like, a nice kind of theatrical touch and maybe um, calling back to the early days. And then they take a little intermission, and then the, the stage widens, and they do, like, a full rock set for two hours. So, um... It was interesting because I was wondering what they're going to play because they have, I don't know, 10 albums or whatever worth of material. And, and I kind of assumed that they'd kind of just put together their greatest hit, hit set because uh, that's what I would do if I was in their shoes and just kind of please everybody. Uh, but as a testament to sort of like 
the type of artist that Gordani is, and I, and I want to say that he kind of wrote the set list for this, uh, this whole tour, uh, they played a lot of new stuff, <laughs> and they played a lot of, like, deep album cuts. And it's not to say they didn't play a lot of hits, because they did play a lot of hits, but they, like, you know, they didn't play Wheat Kings, they didn't play Courage, Right. Uh, they didn't play Fiddler's Green. They didn't play Music at Work. They didn't play It's a Good Life If You Don't Weep. There's a, countless songs they didn't play that they could have. Um, but I think that's why Gord, that, that's like one sort of, that one example is sort of symbolic to why people respect Gord so much as an artist. Because it's easy for anybody who's over 50 who has a catalog that he does to say, no, we're just going to play the hits and kind of like in the way the Rolling Stones do. But the hip have always been making new music, and I think they're, they're excited about new music, and they want to play those new songs, which is harder to do. You know, it, the, the easier thing would have been to do is just to play the hits. Sure. But they did not do that, and that uh, I give them a lot of respect for that. If you had not known the circumstances and you're just someone that went along, say you're from England and you yeah. go to this show and you go with a friend and you don't know the circumstances, do you think you pick up on that vibe? Or do you, you think it's just you, another rock show? You only pick up, up on it because the, the fans are going nuts. Right. But the band itself didn't really do anything particularly different. They, the one thing they did between encores, they they all hugged each other. Uh, and actually, a side anecdote. I remember, I don't know if Gord told me this himself or heard this from somebody, but I think uh, he said that the band didn't like hugging in the early days. Like it just, And I don't think it was part of the culture sure. for men. Now men hug each other a lot, I think. <laughs> No, really, I think... No, I mean, I've never not known a time where I didn't hug. Yeah, but but I think, you know, if you're, like, a normal Canadian dude in the 80s, and like, I don't think that's a thing that men would do, culturally speaking. Sure. I don't think. And and I think I remember... Who told me this? Because it's definitely a memory. It's coming to me now. But that the band never really hugged each other, but they all hugged each other on stage, and they all kissed each other on the cheek or maybe on the lips. Like, I, they, but they really embraced in a really nice way... Um, and that was really touching. And then the band would leave the stage, and then Gord would kind of go out to either side of the stage and just wave to people, blow kisses, and really appear to soak it in. Yeah. Uh, and it was those moments that I was just blowing. And, like, Lauren, who was with me, was crying. And, oh, my goodness. And, like, and, and people, uh, like, were just yelling, thank you, thank you, thank you, and just screaming. Like, and I was screaming. Like, you just it was just an emotional experience especially uh, in those moments where, where Gord was, uh, was just looking out at the crowd, like not even when the song was playing. They did play Long Time Running, and that was very tragic and, and sad. But, uh, and the last thing I will say, classic, uh, classic Gord, who, who, who's like the king of like awesome like one-liners or just like poetic phrases, he says, like kind of towards the end of one of the last songs, he goes, the first time we played here, 13. Second time we played here, 38. The third time we played here, 17. It's a tough gig. <laughs> but just because, like, the first time we played Toronto, 13, people, yeah. 38 people, then back to 17. It's a tough gig. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I thought it was such a killer line. Like, so he's saying well, the first time we played in Toronto. Yeah, the first time we played in Toronto, 13 people. Right. And the next time, 38 people. Than 17 people. Right. I love that. But the thing which he did, uh, and which, uh, and he gives his, uh, just as a writer, he gives the listener more credit because I think he said it that way. I could be misquoting him a little bit. Yeah. But he could have said, the first time we ever played in Toronto, we had 13 people show up to the gig. And then we had 30. He didn't say that. He said, the first time we played here, 13. The second time, 38. The third time, 17. 
and you, and you had to work for it a little bit to go, yeah. oh, oh, he's talking about the first time he played Toronto. Anyway, and the amount of people. And the amount of people. Not at his age. Not his age or what year it was in exactly. 2013 yeah. or whatever. Yeah. I just thought, and that, that sort of just speaks to the kind of thinker he is and the way he writes and the way he, like, tells stories. Yeah. Yeah. What a show, man. Yeah. Well, moving on from that. Yes. Um, we have Nora Jones on the show today. Yes. Nora's a big deal. Yeah. So uh, you went to, where was the interview at? The Shangri-La Hotel. Ooh, was it like in a fancy room? It wasn't a fancy room, yeah. Just me and her, one-on-one. Yeah. And uh, how, how welcoming was she? Like, did she come up and introduce herself and do the I'm Nora thing? She absolutely did. She nice. was very cool, very, I'm Nora. She asked me if I wanted a bottle of water because she was nice. grabbing one for herself. And I was like, oh, okay. Was her kid around? No, she no. was, she was, so her people were kind of in another room, like people with the label and whatnot that she was doing, going around doing press with. And then her and I were in a separate room and it was just her and I, and we sat down and it was interesting talking to her because obviously Nora Jones has kind of been a part of our lives or, you know, Household name. culture since the early 2000s, yep. late nineties, whatever it would have been. It's funny. Cause I was, I was like, Oh, you know, I, I want to talk about a lot of things here. And she's had a long career and she's collaborated with so many people. And for the first time ever, I it up out of the gate because <laughs> okay. my first question was about how she worked with Danger Mouse yeah. uh, on this record that she did previously and how she'd gone in and they wrote in the studio nothing was preconceived they just kind of let it roll and that's how they made it so I was I was prefacing the question I was getting all ready and instead of saying Danger Mouse I said Dead Mouse <laughs> like an idiot which is the the classic uh, mix up you're not the first person to do that I, I know yeah I know but but it's, but it's still. I'm sure, but like, oh, just deflating. Oh, and she corrected me right away. Uh-huh. And it was like, I was like, oh, man, now I got to work to win her back over. Yeah. Like, right away, it's like, she's like, this guy's a buffoon. I shouldn't have gave him a water. Uh, <laughs> what the hell is he going to talk to me about? Anyway, she was really gracious about it. And uh, I was like, shake it off. Shake it off, V-Man. Yeah, yeah, you got to just put that behind. Just got to keep moving. Question. I made some joke like, oh, it's my Canadian, I don't know. Yeah. Like, some bullshit. What, um, what, what were the most revealing parts of the interview for you, would you say? I thought it was interesting when she talked about growing up, you know, going to music school and then moving to New York City for the first time, starting to write music because she didn't write music sort of before. She didn't think she was a strong songwriter. And she only sort of played it. She yes, was just exactly. covering the classics. Right? Yeah, totally. Uh, Any dad stuff that you found interesting? No. Didn't really get too deep into that stuff. Did you ask her about, did you ask her about dad stuff? Uh, I, it was more like a roundabout as someone that was the, you know, your uh, kids are this children of someone famous because she talks about going on the road with her kids uh-huh. and so I never asks anything too direct because uh-huh. I don't know what the relationship's like there yeah interesting alright but anyway do you want to get to Nora Jones and, and, and have a listen love to so I read on the last record with Dead Mouse you uh, went in with Danger Mouse Danger Mouse my goodness it's, it's my, it's my Canadian difference. brain yeah yes yeah terrible start that's my Canadian brain <laughs> that's okay Danger Mouse yeah. um you guys wrote from scratch. Like, you went in and wrote from scratch. Yeah. That's how he wanted to work. And um, it was pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, he's an amazing writer, and he's so fun to collaborate with. Yeah. Yeah. On this one, what was the approach? Well, I already had these songs before we went in the studio. so And that's how most of my albums are. I, I don't usually write in the studio. Um, so... Like, you never write in the studio. It's always sort of like you go in with your songs fully complete. Yeah, usually. Like, I mean... When you're writing, though, like, how do you demo? Do you sort of just, like... Just on my phone, usually. I used really? to have just a voice recorder like that, you know, or not that nice, actually. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I if I think of an idea, often a song will start when I'm not near an instrument because they just kind of happen out of nowhere. And rather than running to an instrument, I'd rather just get it down before I forget it. And so then I'll, 
I'll record whatever it is um, in my phone or whatever. And uh, then when I have time, I'll go to an instrument and try to work it out. So is it like a melody line or a lyric or you just sort of like... Both. Or just a melody or a melody with some lyric. Usually there's like a lyric attached just because, I don't know, sometimes it makes sense. Sure, like a, like a thought comes to you yeah. and then you can sort yeah. of start... Yeah, and it's hard too because when there's a lyric attached, it's usually very hard to get rid of that lyric and put another lyric in its place. So even if it makes zero sense, <laughs> like, it's like, okay, how do I make sense of this? Yeah, so you'll tend to stick with it then and yeah. try to make it work. As I usually to... do because it just feels natural and when you're singing a song... Um, you don't want to get into inside your head. I mean, you want to sing what is feeling natural, you know? Can it, like, it jam you up and it almost stops the process if you start thinking about it too much, do you find? Yeah, I think that when I'm inspired to write and it comes very fast, that's when it's the best because it's the most heartfelt. And when I overthink it, it's... I mean, it's fine. You can work on stuff and you can think about stuff until you get a great line. That's great. But it, in terms of, like, the bulk of a song... Let me tell them to be quiet. Oh, no, I'll go do it. You sit down. Hey guys, can we keep it down out here? Yeah. It's all good. Sweet. I like that you're on it. You're like the boss applesauce. I can't think whenever it's like background Stop. noise. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you're saying you, you, you can work on a song, but you don't want to get too sort of yeah. minutia of messing around with it. Yeah, it's nice to put it aside for me and then when I'm inspired again, you know, if I think of it again or get inspired again. And um, like on this album, there's a few songs where I was just really stuck. I had the lines, chat for tragedy, I had the tragedy part, but I didn't have lyrics for a verse. And same with the wonderful time for love, I had it's a wonderful time for love, but no lyrics for the rest. And, and both of those things set it up for like, you know, what do you put after that? A wonderful time for love, but I didn't really want it to be a love song. Mm -hmm. I meant in, in a different way as a response to like darkness, you know. And tragedy, you know, it's like, what do you come up with after that? There's a lot of tragedy, but what do you want the song to be about? So, How do you contextualize that? Exactly. Yeah. So in those cases, I was very, very stuck. So I went to my friend Sarah Oda, and she kind of helped helped unstick it and wrote some great lyrics, you know. Yeah. Do you find, like, when you, like, are you very precious with your demos? Like, meaning, like, I don't like to show them around. I like to get to a certain spot before I start oh. showing my people my inner circle. My people, like I mean, team, like, like, honestly, I mean, like, I, I really just show them to my friends if I want their opinions or need help. Um, or, like, you know, the producer of the album, for sure. instance. Yeah, I, I'm not that precious with it. But I do get kind of demoitis often. <laughs> There's like nothing you get married like to the idea? Always get married to, like, oh, but that sounded so cool. I hope we get that when we record it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's something about, like, an off-the-cuff recorded just whatever voice recorder iphone recorder something about the compression on it it always sounds kind of good yeah you yeah know? well there's something kind of really nice about like just those raw sounding things and yeah. i feel like people have been putting out sort of like demo sounding albums you know and, and it's like yeah. i think there's something to that sort of sound yeah i mean the sound is great but it's really more the off the cuffness of the performance, the performance yeah for absolutely. me yeah so it was fun we recorded this album to tape and um We'd do like three takes of a song and then move on, and usually we'd get it on the first street three takes. Sometimes it was the first, sometimes it was the yeah. third, you know? Yeah. You wrote this primarily on piano. Yeah. You were saying. And had you been writing on guitar previously? Yeah, even though people kind of think of me as a piano player, which I am, that's my main and instrument. And it's such a strong visual of you yeah, at the piano. It's a visual, know? yeah, but it is my main instrument. But um, even on my first album, the co I only wrote two songs on my first album, and they were both written on guitar. Because right. I had just started writing guitar, I had just moved to New York, I didn't have a piano. 
<laughs> yeah, good luck. You know, I didn't have a piano at the time. I didn't have enough money yet or space. <laughs> and so I was playing guitar in my bedroom late night. And, you know, I only knew like four or five chords on guitar. But um, I knew enough music in my head to, you know, hear what I was going for, too. But, yeah. What prompted you to move to New York? I wanted to play music. I, I was really into jazz then, and I wanted to play jazz, and I, could, I just always wanted to move to New York. I, I was born in New York, and I, I had visited a lot growing up. My mom and I would visit New York to visit her friends. and um, It's just, a magical place. Kind of always wanted to, yeah. Yeah. Um, did you find it difficult when you got there to sort of play, write, yeah. get immersed in the music scene? Well, I wasn't really writing much when I moved there, and that's kind of when I got into songwriting, and um, it wasn't my focus, you know. But, yeah, it was definitely hard. I ended up playing in a lot of restaurants because of the type of music I was playing, mm -hmm. which is great practice, but it's not very satisfying uh, as a musician, you know. But it was fun, and I, don't, I really enjoyed it at the time. And I guess just making money was the main issue with New York because it's so expensive. Of course, yeah. And... And I had never waited tables because in Texas, I already was gigging in high school. So I, in college, I had a gig every weekend. And I made enough money because I lived in Denton, Texas, which was very cheap. Of course. And I was going to college. And anyway, so I didn't have to have a day job. I could just play music and make enough money. So when I moved to New York, I had no experience waiting tables. And it was really hard for me to get a good job as a waitress at first because... I had no experience. Didn't know how to do it. Yeah, well, I just had no experience, and there's plenty of people with experience. So my first job was so bad. It was like at 6 in the morning. It was the breakfast shift at this hotel restaurant. And I thought, well, it's fine. I'll have plenty of time at night to go see music and play gigs. And well, I, I was going to bed at 8 o'clock every night. Right. So that didn't last very long. Um, when you started playing music as a child, did you sort of start plucking a piano first? Was it a guitar? How did you find music? It was piano. I, well, actually, I started singing in church choir. Oh, okay. So singing first. Yeah, there was a children's choir at my church, and so I was in it. And I, I begged my mom for piano lessons. And then she got a piano when I was about seven. And I took piano lessons for a little while, and then I really wanted to quit because I hated practicing. <laughs> <laughs> and so I really, really was annoyed by it. And it took all the fun out of it, you know. And so my mom said, just take until... Take, take for five years, take lessons, and then you can quit. But then if you ever want to go back to it, you'll have a little bit of a foundation. I yeah. thought that was pretty cool advice. And so five years, I quit. You did, the, you did your time? I did my time, and I quit. And then when I was in seventh grade, my mom, I think she took me to a big band concert or something, and I really liked it. And so she found this teacher that taught jazz piano. She was a jazz pianist, so her, her lessons were way less structured and more about improvising, and she was a really cool, like, kind of a interesting hippie lady yeah. named Julie Bonk in Dallas, and she's a great musician. She gigs, you know, and so that kind of turned me back into, into music and into the piano, and I start, she kind of tried to get me to write songs. To, I really do credit her with um, trying to, like, encourage me to do that, and she had, like, little tools to help me write. And I did write a little bit then, but I really hated everything I was writing. It was really cheesy. So right. I kind of didn't write. I don't consider that when I started writing songs, even though it is kind of like the first time I, st I tried. But I hated the songs so much, I just put them away. And I didn't write again until I was in, in New York at age 20. 
at that point did you start sort of developing like a positive relationship with writing songs like you're like you started to enjoy what you were outputting yeah later yeah. later when I when I moved to New York yeah that's because I started hanging out with real songwriters you know mm. it was interesting um you know you're saying you, you love jazz and you know sort of this music that I think growing up is sort of like a little left of center yeah I mean were your peers did you have friends that run these sort of things well the truth is yeah because when I was in seventh grade and I got into jazz, I was in the jazz, I was in band in junior high. So it was like mine kids. And like, it was all the band kids. So yeah. of course, most of those kids were into jazz. Um, not the flute players, maybe, but like most of the saxophone players and the trumpet players and trombone players were. And then there was an after school jazz band that we were all in. And then I went to um, um, high school for the performing arts in Dallas. And that was, like, we were all left to center there. Yeah. I mean, th those kids taught me so much. Going, to, I went to high school with these amazing musicians, and, you know, they were all into all kinds of music, but it was very jazz-centric, so. Was there any sort of leaning towards, like, pop? Like, oh, we'll go see a, you know, no. a whatever concert. It was always like, we're doing what we're doing. I, I remember the school would get free tickets, because we were right downtown. We were near a couple theaters, and... We would get free tickets to all kinds of music all the time, or or tickets to go see soundcheck of different artists, okay, and yeah. that was fun. That's but, pretty cool. I mean, I don't really remember any pop artists being part of that bundle. You know, <laughs> like it was a pretty weird selection. Yeah, I, I was, and then I went to college. Um, I went to jazz school basically, which was even more deep into the jazz nerdery scene and the jazz police. And then when I made my first album, and it ended up not being super strictly jazz it was very open and more about the songs and I remember thinking god my like jazz police self would have hated this <laughs> or yeah. something you know but you know at that point I was more open of course um on this record and I, I guess with writing in general we always like to get into this sort of minutiae of the songwriting or any sort of work that the artist does when you're writing do you find that writing from a personal like place is more comforting than writing say about something you observe well, I think when writing about something I observe, because I'm not a like frequent songwriter, I'm not always trying to write a song. When I'm writing something personally, for me, when I'm writing about something I observe, it's because it's moving me in some way. So that's personal. Okay. You know what I mean? But I think for a lot of songwriters who are more like trying to always capture things from the outside world, maybe that's different. But for me, if I'm writing about something that's outside of my own personal life, yeah definitely being deeply moved by it you know mm -hmm. or it's moving something inside of me right does that make sense yeah it totally makes sense is it, i mean is there anything is there a song that stands out on this album for you that you were like this might be the most personal song on the record on this album hmm. there's a couple songs that are very like i know what they're about you know but yeah um yeah there's a couple songs like that and then the song um and then there was you. I think that's probably one of my favorites on the album. I start writing that when my husband and I were dating, and then after I had my son, the whole song just changed meaning for me because mm. it's a love song, you know. And um, people always ask, like, how has having kids changed your music? And the truth is, it really hasn't changed very much for my music, but it has changed how I hear love songs. Oh, interesting. It is interesting. Like, think about that Brian Wilson song, God Only Knows. Yeah. Okay, that's one of the greatest love songs ever written, or at least I think it's a love song. Most people think of it that way. Um, I love that song. And then after we had our son, it was like, oh, my God, 
now we sing it to our son and we think of it in a whole different way and it's mm-hmm. like I don't know it's just kind of interesting practically do you find having a family affects things like touring you know and sort of yeah. business and music I'm definitely gonna see how that goes <laughs> <laughs> yeah it'll be a sort of learn as you go yeah I mean I mean the goal is to just bring them with us and you know figure it out yeah yeah I don't want I don't want to be gone from them of course yeah um you had, you know, this kind of commercial success you had out of the gate is pretty, I think, uncommon. Because, you know, the success early on, do you have, like, when you come up with a record, like, sort of like a marker or like a checklist of what you hope to accomplish with every record? No. Never think that no. way? No. If, if I thought that way, then the music would probably be pretty bad. Sure. I mean, I don't, yeah, that's not how I make music. And I, I also, you know, I was very lucky in that, my first time out of the gate it was big so I've had the luxury to not have to think that way if I don't want you know what I mean yeah you've been afforded the opportunity I've been afforded a lot of exactly yeah so I've taken full advantage of that and I'm I'm really glad that I'm not too hung up on that stuff yeah yeah it's good it's a good way to create I think it's lucky for sure but I think um for me I've been pretty happy with you know my career at this point you know I don't really want that kind of success with every album that's kind of intense to yeah. be honest yeah <laughs> i mean it was awesome and it but it was also kind of scary so um i'm i'm happy with how things have gone since then do you i mean do you ever think about sort of the factors that go into becoming super successful do you ever contextualize like why me and why not you know this artist that i came up with or how does this work or like why did this happen i think it's it's probably a lot of different things it's like for me, for my first record, it was sort of a moment in time and it had to do with a lot of different things. Luck and and my specific music, you know, the 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 times we were in, the stuff that was on the radio that it was different from maybe. Yeah. You know, a lot of different factors. But, you know, every every artist is different. Some artists have a huge team pushing them to the top and like maintaining that huge status and that's a different thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um you changed the lyrics to Neil Young's Don't Be Denied. I'm sorry, Canada. <laughs> <laughs> From uh, Winnipeg to Anchorage, obviously. And some I did, yeah. Um, and it's, it's no longer in the first person. I mean, what's your relationship with that song? I love that song. I've always loved that song. Um, I sang it, um, well, he was playing that song when I opened up for him with my band Puss in Boots last year. And I was so stoked that he was playing it because I, I love that song and I, I didn't think he played it a ton. And then I was doing this Neil Young tribute show um, that month too with some friends and I, I wanted to sing that song but it was really hard for me to sing it in the first person talking about growing up in Canada and going sure. up to Winnipeg you know so I just changed it around a little and I changed it to the third person and then I thought oh, what if I change it to she you know and then I thought well I'm just gonna go for it I moved to Anchorage Alaska when I was in seventh grade yeah and I just kind of I just wanted to personalize it a little more Hopefully he doesn't mind. I don't think he cares, but you know, <laughs> it, nothing against Canada. I just couldn't relate to the the lyrics that way. Oh, so. I think it's great. Yeah. I, yeah, I love it. Trust me. <laughs> okay, I, cool. I don't speak for all Canadians, but <laughs> yeah. I, I appreciate them. Sacrilegious, maybe. But yeah. Um, well intended. Yes. Do you have a relationship with Neil at all? Um, I've I've met him a bunch of times. I've played at the Bridge School a lot, and we had so much fun opening for him. Yeah. I'm not like calling him up on the phone, being like, "Hey, man, <laughs> you want to have lunch?" But. Um, yeah. I feel, I feel like he's a, you know, a good hang. Yeah, decent yeah. dude. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I worship his music, you know. 
Yeah, he's a Canadian icon. And his ethics and, you know, how he believes so strongly in certain things. I think it's amazing. Was that a big tour that you went on with him? Was that like sort of like a, an it arena It was a big tour, yeah. It was like big amphitheaters. It was fun. We only did four dates, but it was really fun. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the first time you played an arena or like a, a huge venue? I don't because I must have worked up a little bit to it, but I don't know if I ever played arenas. I might have played a couple of arenas in France where they... But they cut them in half they and the they drape bit. it. Yeah, so it still feels a little more theatery. Yeah. But I've never been big enough to play like a serious arena show. Walk into a massive. Yeah. Sort of, yeah, exactly. Actually, I don't know if I've been to one. Well, I went to see the Grateful Dead show last summer. That was probably the only arena show I've been to. Really? I think. You've managed to avoid like. Oh my God, I saw Rush when I was in junior high. <laughs> That's I what I was that. getting at. My mom's friend took us. Yeah. Yeah. How was that? Another more Cancun. Yeah, yeah, more Canadian. <laughs> I'm pandering now. Too. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> we love it. No, I, I actually don't. I, I remember it was fun, but I don't remember very much. But yeah. Right. I wanted to ask you've collaborated with like so many high-profile artists. What is it about that? I mean, is that something that you seek out? Is it people approaching you? Like, what is it about collaboration that you find like fulfilling? It's just fun. It's like doing something different, you know. With other creative people. Yeah, and you learn something from everybody, especially people you admire. Usually people just call me or say, hey, I have this song. Do you want to sing on it? And then I've collaborated with some people on my own albums. Like, I, I got Dolly Parton to sing on my second album, which is pretty awesome. But it's <laughs> How does I, that... Do you, I, like, do you make, put a call in or do you get yeah. people talking to people? Like, how does that work where you get Dolly? Like, what's the actual... Well, like, process. in that case, I had been asked to sing on a Dolly tribute album, so I sang one of her songs, and she liked it so much that she asked me to perform it with her for the Country Music Awards that year, and that was a hoot, and we hung out, and we had dinner, and, like, we Dolly is a good hang, yeah. and a darling person, and just was so awesome. That was definitely a highlight. Um, and so after that, you know, I felt comfortable asking if she would do it. And so there was this kind of more bluegrassy song on my second album, Creeping In. And yeah, I just asked. I, I might have asked through management. I'm not sure. I can't remember now, but mm-hmm. I felt like I could ask. You know. Yeah, you guys were buds. You had dinner. You she did out. it. Yeah. She came to the studio. We did it live. It was all live. Really? Yeah. Why else? I mean, how? Yeah. I've done a lot of collaborations, and I can say most of them are not live. But, um, boy, it's a lot more fun when you can do that. It's yeah. special. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Is there anyone, I mean, who's your dream collaboration, obviously, outside of people you've already worked with? I don't know. You know, I don't really think that far ahead. If I if I had a plan to do something with somebody, I probably would have already asked, but I don't know. I love singing harmonies, you know. I don't know. I love watching those old videos from the 70s with Dolly and Emmy Lou and Linda Ronstadt, those three, three of them singing harmonies. It's like one of my favorite things. Yeah. So, I don't know. I'd probably sing harmonies with somebody. But there's no name. There's no, 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 nothing in particular. Not really. I mean, there's a bunch, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I always wonder, too, like, you know, obviously you're creating, you made this record. Do you listen to other contemporary artists or, you know, what do you listen to in your day-to-day? I listen to a lot of old music. Yeah? Yeah. I, I don't listen to as much new music as I do old. But, I, I mean, I, I do sometimes. Um... I, this last year, I got into that band Acetone. That's not new. I mean, they haven't been a band for a long time, but um, I'd never heard them until recently. I really like them. Um, yeah, it just depends on the day. Yeah. Do you 
as your kids get older, do you hope to sort of get them into music and sort of, I guess, shepherd them towards sort of like, you've gotten so much out of music, I imagine, you're this creative yeah. person and you love creating. Is that something you want for them or is it something that if they come to it, they come to it? Do you is think it, about it? No. Well, we, my husband and I have talked about it because I remember when I was pregnant, he's like, God, I hope he's not a musician because that would be so hard to be like the do- the son of somebody and we were talking about it and I was like, yeah, but he's going to be who he's going to be. It's not a big deal, you know? Let him just do what he wants to do and now... And I remember the same hour that he was saying that. He went upstairs and then he came back downstairs. He's like, gosh, I hope he plays drums so we can all jam. <laughs> it was really Family funny. band? Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it, you know, it's like, I think he's just going to be around music so much that hopefully it gets in his, his system enough to enjoy it and, you know, whatever happens beyond that is mm-hmm. up to him. It's interesting, too, that your husband says, you know, oh, being the child of a musician, yeah. you'd more know, know more than anyone, I feel like, about the idea of the shadow or legacy or <laughs> yeah. something like that. A little bit, yeah, but I feel like I really... But do you feel it's negligible? Like, it's like, you're going to be who you're going to be. I think you're going to be who you're going to be. I don't think we're going to push them in any direction, you know. Yeah. So that, you know, there's nothing I can do. Yeah. Right? I mean, as long as he knows how it is. I guess going forward, like, as you look into the future do you have any sort of hopes or aspirations outside of music or is it just you want to continue to make music and create I just want to yeah continue to do it I mean outside of music sure there's lots of stuff I'm interested in it's not like I'm gonna go make a career out of something else as of now <laughs> right I doubt that would happen shift gears become I'm too lazy at this point I just want to <laughs> hang out with my kids and like not wake up early <laughs> unless they are basically <laughs> all right welcome to the dessert uh we are still in the small booth but now we are joined by Shane uh we described it off the top but here we are the three of us we'll post a photo on the socials uh Shane how's it going welcome to the booth uh, good, yeah. This is our uh, first time doing three people in the booth. <laughs> Usually it's just me and you crammed in the booth, so this yeah. is kind of cool. It's just a natural <laughs> conversation. It's like a dark box, basically. <laughs> it's like a... I like being in those. No. <laughs> <laughs> people are wondering what's going on in here. Like, three dudes came in here. They just, they're hearing giggling coming from the, the booth. But uh, so you guys were talking about a dance party, or did you? Oh yeah! Th- so this weekend uh, we were at our friend uh, Dan's. Uh, he had a big loft party. A friend of ours in Hamilton. He got this loft recently. So he, he he's, he's quickly turned into like a big shot. You know, three years ago he was on he's a baller and, yeah. and broke and had no money. Yeah, I was rolling up his uh, flannel sleeves before he went on dates. He didn't know how to roll up sleeves on his shirt on his button ups. Now he has a penthouse suite. With the Wolf of Wall Street projected onto the screen. Like, <laughs> yeah. onto the wall, actually. Yeah. So he gets this loft, and he decides, um, I'm going to have this opulent party where we're going to have hors d'oeuvres served. There's going to be champagne on tap. We're going uh, to have people walking around. Or he goes, everybody's going to be dressed up in, like, blazers, even though Shane only wore a T-shirt. Uh, and everybody's going to really come out and do their best. He was really adamant about this. To be fair, though, he was trying to do... He, his rationale was... I don't want to have a party where it's just a bunch of shirtless dudes sitting on a couch watching basketball, which typically mm-hmm. is the way most of these parties start. He <laughs> wanted to do something that was inviting to the girlfriends. He really went out of his way to try to make it conducive that, uh, for a place that like girls would want to go and hang out and mm-hmm. have a good time. Yeah, so we get there. Uh, the place is beautiful. It's amazing. And he's got this projector, and it's playing the Wolf of Wall Street, like, onto the wall. That was uh, my choice. Oh, that was a good one. Actually, what we tried to do, the technology kind of screwed up, was... Um, we tried to find, I just Googled uh, sexy 80s movies. 
<laughs> and like, and we did we download them uh, like nine and a half weeks with Mickey Rourke. Is that sexy? That's some some website. Kind of. They do something yeah, with milk in that. Yeah, or it's more noiry. It's like okay. there's only like two real scenes. Blue's like, the yeah. warmest color. Was well, much we'll better. get there. We'll get there. Oh, okay, and then sorry. there's another one that didn't work. Uh, we also downloaded some like 1960s, 70s like sexploitation movies because we have this other friend, uh, Bobby Kimberly Young Lyons, who throws lots of cool parties all the time, and we just called him. Uh, our friend the nut was with us helping us set up. Anyway, we tried to get those. The technology didn't work, and then we ended up just looking through Netflix to see what was available. And that's how we started with Wolf of Wall Street. Which is on Netflix. Check it out. Yeah. <laughs> and Blue is the Warmest Color, which is one of your favorite, like, uh, borderline porno mainstream films. <laughs> well, yeah, that's also on there. I, I will say at one point in the party, like, so everybody's there, everyone's having a good time, drinks are flowing, and then at around, like, 12 at night, Blue is the Warmest Color is projected on the wall, and I was sitting talking to our friend Scott, and he was kind of like, what is this movie? And I had to start explaining why <laughs> the movie was, like, actually really artistic, because the, the, basically everyone started paying attention in that first, like, sex scene, which is very graphic, and it was like, what kind of party is going on right now? <laughs> But uh, did you guys have fun at the party or what? Well, it was it was hard for me. Like uh, Alex, my fiance and I planned to not get super bombed, <laughs> but we also did four fast days throughout uh, the week, uh, which is insane. So basically, I lost eight pounds in a week. You're so, looking great, by the way. Thank you. So I was super skinny for <laughs> me. Like for like you know I was, I was bigger before, and then. <laughs> All the alcohol hit me and Alex like crazy because she was actually in good shape when she started the fast. So now she's in super good shape. But the alcohol just hit us like crazy. And after we took the pictures in front of the bluest, warmest color, no memory. Both of us. No memory. I wake up naked on this little couch. I had my shirt on but no pants. Just my little dinky. I guess that's redundant. But my dinky's just out. Doors open to my home. (laughs) <laughs> we cleaned the house that day, or Alex did. Uh, stuff strewn all about my house. Like, it was, like, ransacked. <laughs> Alex is missing. I can't find her. Then I find her in the bed, so we, we didn't sleep together. She doesn't know what happened. I go, what happened last night? The house is, like, I left the party at the same time as you guys. Do you remember that? No. Oh, yeah. Zero, zero <laughs> We literally left at the same time. <laughs> no, man. Were we, were we messed up? Yeah. We were? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> were, were, were we talking coherent? No. It was just a kind of, you were like arms all over each other, but like not in a romantic kind of way. Like you're each supporting. Prop, yeah, propping each other up. Uh, yeah. So, so then um, fruit flies are everywhere. All this stuff. That, the house is like a dump. Alex's phone is missing. Oh, so we think someone like broke into the house and stole her phone. So we use the Find My Phone app. It's, uh, it's on the 403. The phone's moving. <laughs> but my phone's all cracked to shit, too. Okay. So some buttons don't work. So I can't – we can't use it through my phone. But luckily, uh, my fiance's father is very good at this stuff. So he's like, get in the car, Jake, to uh, his son, Alex's brother. And they track down <laughs> the car. They're following it. <laughs> and it eventually goes to some, like, shitty home in downtown Hamilton. They knock on the door. They say, uh, hey, do you have a phone here by any chance? It's not yours. A uh, woman opens the door a crack, She's and her kid gets out. But Are she, you with him? This no. This is just all reported. This is, He's still trying to find his pants. Yeah. <laughs> the woman goes, no, but uh, my friends have some bags here, and I'm not going to go rooting through their bags. It, like, anything could be in the bags. So John's like, really? And hits a button, and then it starts beeping. And he goes in and grabs the phone and gets it back. Whoa! Yeah, it was, no one else would have done that. So he, he got it back and we got her phone back. And it's a week before the wedding. So we really needed the phone. It had everything. Phone numbers, confirmation, little notes, everything we needed. So it was wow. kind of a miracle day. 
That's crazy. But very scary. So, like, don't fast and drink, we learned. Yeah. It's a life lesson. Shane, yeah. yeah, and actually, speaking of the wedding, we're less than a week away now, Shane. How, how are you feeling? I mean, it's happening. I'm, yeah, I'm really, I was telling you today, I yeah. feel so strange. It reminds me of when I first started at Much, and I had a big shoot with the Pretty Little Liars. The cast came down. And for, like, a week before, it was just constant fear was in, like, the pit of my stomach. This weird feeling. And that's the way I feel right now. So, But it's in my subconscious. Like, I'm not scared to marry my fiance, but it's like maybe I'm scared of the speech or the the day going wrong or people showing up and it not meeting expectations because we're not doing it at a hall or anything. We're doing it at my fiance's parents' place. So everything's on us to make it go right. Like no one's providing chairs, anything. We We didn't really think about that. We thought having a backyard wedding meant easier wedding, more casual yeah, everything. You have to do more work unless you you're, hire, do everything. Are you hiring any staff. Yeah, but even that, they flake out <laughs> because they don't know what they're getting paid or anything, so they'll make up an excuse and be like, oh, I'm sick that weekend or something like that. <laughs> you it's have a horrible excuse. In your head. But, uh, yeah, so you're not going to be there, but uh, hopefully <laughs> if it turns out very bad, I'm glad you're not there to see me embarrass myself. No, but you know what I'd like to say? Well, first of all, I'm very sad that I can't be there. The band is in Europe, and we couldn't work around it, unfortunately. But the thing about uh, the Champagne Boys is that everybody will be there to lend a hand. You know, if, uh, if if the winds start, you know, blowing and chairs are flying all over the place, Dan Hamilton will come to the rescue. Sorry. I don't know. Do you remember when I went to move my house and asked the, the champagne oh, yeah, boys yeah. for help? Yeah. yeah. And then <laughs> you were the only guy that showed Julian up. Julian and I, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it'll, it'll be great. It'll be awesome. And I think that's the whole part of the wedding experience. If it was just another day or another party mm-hmm. you were showing up to and you couldn't give two f- then it wouldn't be your wedding. But yeah. because it's your big day, you... Uh, you have nerves. The one thing about being very busy, though, is it doesn't allow you enough time to, to worry about, like, to fret over stuff. A hundred percent. I find the time, though. <laughs> <laughs> I make time to worry. <laughs> That's it. That's all. That's our episode. Thanks to Shane for coming on. Thanks to Nora Jones. Yeah. Uh, huge thank you to Jenna Gregory, who provides the artwork for the show. You can find her stuff at jennasdoodles.com. A uh, huge thank you to Dan Carruthers and Tara Paquette, who uh, put together these episodes and, uh, you know, help promote it on social media. Please subscribe to the con- the concert. Please subscribe to the show. Um, and Mike on Much, uh, you know, leave us a comment on Twitter, on Instagram, and on iTunes. All right. I think that's it. Mike Much Podcast is produced by Max Kerman, and I am your host, Mike Gehrman. See you next week if we don't die on the weekend. Boom! <laughs>